On Sunday mornings, um, if you haven't been with us recently, we've been working our way kind of one passage at a time through Paul's New Testament letter to the church at Ephesus, um, Ephesians. And this morning, we're going to come to a few verses where Paul tells us what he's been praying uh, for the Ephesians, for these Christians, um, which in itself is, is kind of cool. A lot of times we'll hear somebody say, I'm praying for you, or I'll be praying for you. Uh, but here, Paul tells us what his prayer actually was. Um, so what was Paul's prayer? L- let me just mention this before we actually read the passage so you can be looking for it. Um, it's a somewhat complex uh, prayer, but uh, to sum it all up, it's a prayer for power. Um, It's a prayer for strength through the Spirit to comprehend not just intellectually, but experientially the love of Jesus, right? Paul talks about the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Um, He's talking about the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's love catching fire in our hearts and in our lives, um, which, whether you know it or not, um, is exactly what we all most need. Um, so, not just to know God's goodness, but to experience His goodness, to taste His goodness. All right, so let me read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. It's printed in your bulletin. Um, and then we'll pray, and, uh, and then we'll talk about this prayer. All right, let's listen to God's holy and inerrant word. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go before him now in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, um, we need this morning to hear your word. We need you to pour out your spirit. Um, because we want to be a people who don't just know about your love, um, but we want to be a people who know your love and experience your presence in our lives. And so, Father, we pray that you would come and be with us this morning. Come and show us your goodness. Come and give us a taste of your goodness. For it's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen. <clears throat> um, Blaise Pascal, a uh, famous uh, French philosopher, 
mathematician, scientist, theologian, author, did all kinds of things, still using his mathematics uh, formulas and theorems that he came up with when he was just 16 years old. Uh, But in 1662, um, Pascal died at age 39. Um, And after his death, someone found a piece of his journal that he had taken and sewn into the lining of his jacket. And, um, And it referenced uh, an experience, it referenced a night in which he experienced the truth of the gospel and of the love of God really catching fire in his heart. Um, and so let me read you some of that journal entry. Pascal wrote this The Year of Grace, 1654, Monday, 23rd of November, from about half past 10 at night. Until about half past midnight, fire. The God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God. Righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, 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 tears of joy. Eternally enjoy for a day's exercise on the earth. May I never forget your words. Amen. Now, listen, Pascal had become a believer several years before that experience. Um, But that night, the truth caught fire in his life. And he had an experience, not just a knowledge, but an experience of God's love and presence in his life. Every scholar uh, that looks at this prayer of Paul's in Ephesians chapter 3 pays attention to something very interesting in these verses. Um, See, in verse 17, Paul prayed that Christ would dwell in their hearts. And then in verse 18 and 19, that they would know Christ's love. The reason that's interesting is that Paul has been saying now for two chapters that they already have these things as Christians. They already have these things, right? A Christian knows and believes in Christ's love through the cross. And to be a Christian is to be united to, is to, be united to Jesus and to have Christ dwelling in your heart. So why, excuse me, sorry, I got a little cough this morning. Um, So why, why would Paul pray for something that he says they have and we have, if we're Christians, if we're believers, that we already have, that is? The answer is he's praying that they and we would experience and sense what we already have. That we would experience Jesus' dwelling presence. That we would experience his love. That we would experience what Paul calls the fullness of God. He was praying for the truth of the gospel to catch fire. A sense on your heart that would bring you tears of joy. Joy, joy, certitude, certitude, feeling, peace, joy, fire. Like Pascal wrote. And that's what we need and want, right? To get the truth of 
the love of God from our heads down into our hearts and into our experience, I mean, that would transform and revolutionize everything about us and our lives. So I want to talk this morning about how we can get that. It's God's spirit that sets the truth on fire. But to use Paul's words to the Philippians, how do we work out with fear and trembling this salvation that is already in us? Right, so Paul gives us some clues, I think, in this prayer of what we have to do. And here's what I'm going to tell you. We have to pray, we have to wrestle, and we have to praise. And I'll explain those as we go. Pray, wrestle, praise. All right, first we have to pray, which is kind of obvious, right? I mean, Paul is praying for the Ephesians. But, but think, about what, think about what we do when we pray. Right, prayer in itself is an admission that God is king and we aren't. I mean, prayer is an act of submission. Right, prayer is admitting our complete dependence upon God to do something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. Paul wrote in verse 14 that he bowed his knees before the Father. Kneeling in prayer wasn't the normal posture for praying for a Jewish man or a Jewish woman. Right? To bow the knee in prayer was a pretty rare thing. It was reserved for the most urgent occasions. And it always was a sign of submission. King Solomon in 2 Chronicles when the, he, he hit his knees in prayer when the Lord visibly came down. And filled the temple. Jesus prayed on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his crucifixion. In verse 15, Paul wrote that he was praying before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And every means every. Right? He's acknowledging that God is king. Over every Christian and also every non-Christian. Over every believer and every agnostic. Over every angel. Over every demon. He's praying in submission before the king from whom every being in heaven and on earth owes its being and allegiance. And in complete dependence and submission, Paul's urgent prayer for them was that through the Spirit, the Ephesians and we would experience God's love and presence. And we have to pray for it. We have to take our little hands off of our lives and fall before the King of Heaven in submission and ask for it. And there's this story in C.S. that C.S. Lewis told in his Narnia books about how This selfish, greedy, awful little boy named Eustace Scrubs uh, turned into a horrible dragon one day. And Eustace tried to peel this awful dragon skin off of himself, but he couldn't. And in his darkest moment of despair, this mysterious lion showed up, right? And when Eustace was unable to undress from this dragon skin, 
This lion said to Eustace, you will have to let me undress you. And so what happened? Eustace bowed his knees and he laid down on the ground, helpless, complete vulnerable submission. And Eustace, his reward was that this lion came near him and touched him and reached deep into him with his claws to remove this dragon skin and make him a boy again. And later on, Eustace was explaining all of this to his friends, and he was, he was asking them to help him understand what happened. Right? He had never known such pleasure and joy. He had been changed. But he was asking them, was it just a dream? Was it a vision? And it was Edmund who spoke up and said, I think you've seen Aslan. And Aslan, of course, was the lion that Lewis used to depict Jesus. It was in bowing the knee and falling in submission and pleading for help for something he couldn't do for himself. And yet it was in that position that he got an experience that he felt the claws of Aslan's grace in his life. A real experience that penetrated his life. A real experience that transformed his life. <clears throat> we're walking a thin line um, when we're talking about spiritual disciplines like prayer. Okay, We aren't talking about a way to manipulate and twist God's arm through because we've got all the mechanics of it right. We're saying we have to pray because prayer is, is a means where God shows up to communicate his grace and his love. You know, let me switch up metaphors just for a moment here. You think about a farmer, right? A farmer who is, in truth, helpless to make his crops grow. He can't do it, right? What he can do is he can till the soil, he can plant the seed, He can water it. In other words, he can provide the right conditions for growth. But after he's done all that, he's helpless to make it grow. The natural natural processes and forces have to take over. And praying in submission before the king that he would strengthen us so that we would experience Jesus' indwelling presence and love, that is tilling the soil and planting the seed and watering it. And we wait for God to to meet us there. To meet us there in an experience of his love and grace. We wait. We keep on praying. We keep on returning to the means by which God communicates his love and his presence. We wait there. Because it's not like we expect this, this to be answered every single day. Or even every single month. Or even every single year like this. Pascal had been a Christian for seven or eight years before his night of fire. But we keep praying consistently and regularly for it. Another thin line, we habitually regularly pray, but we also do with expectation. 
Verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. He is able and willing. We have to pray. We have to take our hands off of our lives and submit and wait for him to meet us in his grace. All right, second, we have to wrestle. We have to wrestle the truth of God's love into our hearts. We have to wrestle the truth of God's love into our hearts. See, down in verse 18, Paul was coming to the main part of his prayer request where he wrote that we may have strength to comprehend. And that word translated comprehend is a very odd word in the Greek. Um, It can mean comprehend, but it can also mean to seize or to grasp or to win or to wrestle or to overtake with hostile intent. And here's what I think Paul is getting at. He's saying We've got to take the truth of God's love and we have to wrestle it down into our hearts. Down into every nook and every cranny of our hearts, we've got to work out the applications and the implications of his love for us. So let me explain. I went to my kids' uh, school this week um, because I was invited to come and speak on, uh, at their chapel service, and the topic that they gave me was integrity, okay? So I basically said, being a person of integrity is being a whole person, consistently the same person, no matter where you are, or who you're with, or what you're doing, right? And I said, the real reason we're not people of integrity is that we're afraid, We're fearful. We're fearful of all kinds of things. We're afraid what someone might think about us. Or or what someone might do to us. Or that we'll get in trouble. Or if people actually saw the real me, they might be horrified. And they might not like me anymore. And the way those fears get conquered... So that we can become the same person no matter who we're with or where we are or what we're doing is by knowing how much we are loved by God and delighted in by Him. And then your fears lose control over you. So I pulled up to the school and I'm sitting in the parking lot. I'm waiting for the chapel. And guess what? I started to get afraid. I'm nervous, you know, I don't know, I don't know what it is. Um, You know, I come here this morning at 9.30, I realized I I forgot my shirt at home and my jacket at home. I I obviously wasn't that nervous coming to speak to you, but a a room full of middle schoolers, that's a whole, that's the stuff of nightmares, terrifying nightmares, right? Um, I live with two of them, and they know I'm not cool. I don't need another hundred of them to know that I'm not cool, but, um, Not to mention what the teachers, I was thinking, would think of me. Uh, This is somewhat humiliating. Uh, But let me just tell you, these are 100% the real things I was thinking 10 minutes before this deal. I was thinking, some teacher is going to be thinking, you know, we had that guy from the healing place, and he really connected with our kids. Um, Why couldn't we just get that guy again? Um, and then I was thinking, somebody's going to think, oh, he's new to Baton Rouge, huh? Um, what was South Baton Rouge thinking when they hired him? And then I thought, well, my kids, they're going to be so embarrassed after this, 
we're probably going to have to transfer schools next year. Um, Now, I thought all those things. Now, here I was about to tell these middle schoolers that the way to deal with their fears is to find yourself resting in the love and the light of God. And so for the next 10 minutes, all I did was try to wrestle the truth of God's love into my heart. You know, I'm scared of failing. I'm scared of being a disappointment. God so loved me, even when I was his enemy, he sent his only son to die for me. I'm afraid of what they'll think of me. The one who spoke everything into existence, he's not just aware that I'm here. He thinks about me all the time, and he delights in me. I'm scared of being embarrassed. God's own son was humiliated for me because I was the joy that was set before him. And you do that, and the truth begins to warm up and catch fire. That's wrestling the truth of God's love into your heart. It's how you work out the applications and implications of God's love down into every nook and cranny of your life. And I know that that whole middle school thing is kind of a silly illustration, but hopefully you see the principle because this wrestling of the truth and wonder of God's abiding love for you down into your fears of being alone even though you so badly want to be married. Wrestling the truth of God's tender, fatherly care and love for you down into your anxiety over the destructive choices you see your child making right now. Wrestling the truth of God's free grace and his total acceptance of you into the fears of what others will think when they find out about your failing business. Wrestling the truth of God's presence and his promise to be with you always. Down into the pain of being in a marriage where you feel unseen and unloved. Wrestling the love and care and presence of God down into your fear of failure. Into your shame, into your insecurity, into your anger, into your temptations. Into the places where your heart has been hardened. On and on we could go. We have to learn and practice wrestling the truth of God's love into our hearts. And it's not easy. It's hard work. And it's honestly, it's work too hard for you to do on your own. Which is why Paul is praying for the strength of the Spirit. The same power and strength, by the way, that resurrected the Lord Jesus from the grave. Pray that he give you that strength to wrestle the amazing truth of God's love for you down into every corner of your life because it's in the doing of that and in the practice of that that truth can catch fire. Let me ask you a question here. Um, Why do you think Blaise Pascal sewed that piece of his journal into the lining of his jacket? I mean, he kept it with him constantly. For eight years until his death. I think it's because Pascal knew that there would be times 
when he would be inconstant. There would be times that he would waver. There would be times when he would be prone to walk away from God. But he wanted a reminder with him that God was always a fire. And that God was always constant. And that God would never waver towards him. And that God would never, ever walk away from him. How did Pascal end that journal entry? May I never forget your words. Amen. He knew he would have to wrestle God's word into his heart. Listen, we sang this morning, I wrote down the lyrics, Soul, then know thy full salvation. Rise o'er sin and fear and care. But what is the author of that hymn doing? Who's he talking to? He's talking to himself, just like the psalmist did so many times. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Wrestling is learning how to talk to your own soul. Think, the, the song said, think what spirit dwells within thee. Think what father smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win thee. Wrestle it down into your heart. So two quick things and then on to the last point. One, you have to wrestle the truth of God's love into your heart with other people. Verse 18, that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. You cannot do this alone. And church is not a spectator sport. To come here and just sit on the sidelines and never be involved in relationships. We all need people in our lives. Deep relationships where the truth can be spoken in love. Friends who are believing in God's love for us when we are finding it too hard to believe ourselves. You need community. You need friendships that will help you wrestle the truth of God's love into your heart. And two, you need to wrestle the truth of the love of Christ into your heart. The love of Christ into your heart. The breadth and length and height and depth of God's love, verse 18, that sounds very spiritual, very religious, I know. Um, and that's why immediately Paul speaks of, the, of knowing the love of Christ in verse 19, the very next phrase. You and I need to see God's love not abstractly, but in a true and real story, in the story of the gospel of Jesus. So, just real quick, we'll do this. How wide is the love of Jesus? Ephesians chapter 1, he loved you when you were dead. Ephesians chapter 2, rather. He loved you when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done or where you've been. His love is wide enough for you. His arms were stretched out wide for you to die for you and to welcome all who would come, no matter who they are. How long is the love of Jesus? Ephesians 1, he has loved you before the foundation of the world. How high is the love of Jesus? Ephesians chapter 2, he has raised us up with Jesus and seated us. In the heavenly places. How deep is the love of Jesus? Ephesians 1. In Jesus we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. According to, the rich, according to his glorious grace. And there is no bottom. To the riches of his glorious grace. 
And what if this became your habit? Day by day, minute by minute, hour by hour, in all the circumstances of your life, wrestling the truth of God's love like that into your heart in real concrete ways. You know, you've seen the, those survivalist TV shows, the guys that go out there in the wilderness or the jungle or whatever, and I always l- love watching for that moment. How are they going to make a fire without matches? And they get these sticks and they rubbing these sticks together, right, patiently, methodically. They rub those sticks together back and forth until enough friction produces this tiny little ember. And then they blow on that ember, on that coal, until it becomes a blaze of fire, right? That's what we've got to do, Paul is saying. Patiently and consistently wrestle God's love into our hearts, warming our hearts with God's love, until it catches fire and comes ablaze. Wrestling God's truth into our hearts is just another discipline like prayer. Tilling the soil, planting, watering, waiting for truth to catch fire. Okay, finally and briefly here, you have to praise. Um, it's very characteristic for Paul that he would end his prayer with a doxology. Verses 20 and uh, 21, is it? Yeah, 20 and 21. Um, if, you, if you've read many of Paul's letters, this is pretty familiar type of language. But I think it's not just Pauline. It is biblical through and through. Because in the Bible's view, this is what you were made to do. Right? And there's no experience of God's love apart from doing and being what God made you to do and be. Which is to glorify and enjoy God, which is to delight in him even as we are experiencing his delight in us. And every experience of his love and every experience of his grace, it leads to more praise and leads to us leaning more and more into our full humanity, into our full humanness. In verse 20, Paul says, you and I can't even begin to think Or imagine what God can do in our lives according to his power at work within us. So Paul leads us to praise the God, to to God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. It's in worshiping him, it's in praising him, in being and doing what we're made to be and do, that God often meets us and gives us an experience and a sense. Of his love for us. All right, here's my go to illustration for this. I use it like twice a year, so you probably already heard it. It's just enough, you know, it's too much where you think, ah, he's used that too much, but not enough that you can actually prove that I, that I have. So um, I'll, I'll do the very brief version. When I was in seminary, I bought a chocolate lab, and um, I think I'm going to see her in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, She was almost glorified when she was here. Um, Amazing dog. But as you know, labs are, they're bred for retrieving in the water. Okay? And so when she was, you know, a couple months old, a few weeks old, little puppy, I brought her to the water for the first time. And she didn't want anything to do with it. So I would try to throw things in the water, and then I'd have to go get them out of the water and all that kind of, but she wouldn't go, she didn't want anything, wouldn't touch it. 
So I left, came back a week later, and uh, she got her little paws wet um, on the bank. But that's it. She didn't want to go in past that. So again, went home. The next week, went back out. You know, she's getting older. I'm a little concerned about her. Um, And uh, she gets in. She gets her legs in, but she's not moving beyond that point. Um, So I got in the water, right? I stripped down, (laughs) get in the water, trying to call her to myself. She won't come. She just stand there and whine and cry at me, but she won't come in. So I put her back in the car, and I'm driving home, and I'm thinking, I just spent a lot of money on a defective Labrador retriever. Um, This thing's broken. So I came back a week later, and this time she got in. And she got all the way in and started swimming. And to see her discover what she was made to be and to do, I mean, it was a thing of beauty. I had to get back in the water again, but this time to get her out because I couldn't get her out. Right From that day on, if we were in the car and we drove anywhere close to that pond, she would start shaking in the back seat and crying. She so wanted to get out and get in that water. It was in, it was in the doing and being what she was made to do and be that she experienced the fullness of her labness, right? Probably not a word. And, and you and I, we were made to praise, to give God the glory. We were made to center our lives upon him. And the clearest expression of our humanness comes when we are praising our maker and redeemer. We were made to delight in the king of kings himself and not just his gifts, but in who he is. We were made to live and move and have our being in him. You shouldn't expect that God would give you an experience of his love and presence apart from you doing what he made you to do and be. So let me end with a very specific piece of application. We could, we could make a lot more than this. But we've had the opportunity together this morning to sing together, right? And we'll have one more opportunity in a couple, couple moments. Uh, one commentator on Ephesians that I, I've really, I've been waiting to quote for a while just so I could say his name. His name is Klein Snodgrass. And Sounds like a Harry Potter character to me. Uh, But anyway, he writes this. This is the reason why worship and praise are so crucial. They give opportunity for us to tell the truth about ourselves and God. Listen, when we sing, we are telling the truth about ourselves and God. When we sing... We are wrestling the truth of God's love into our hearts. And good old Snodgrass, he missed this one. But when we sing, we're not just singing. Take your bulletin home today and read through the hymns without singing them. And you will realize they are all prayers set to melodies. See... If you were here last week, I I quipped during the announcement time that you should hug a musician. Um, But serious, I'm being serious now. Anyone who comes up here to help lead us in singing, you should thank. You should thank them deeply. Because they are helping you praise. They are helping you pray. 
They are helping you wrestle the truth of God's love deep into your heart. These three spiritual disciplines, they have to be coming together in your life regularly and habitually. It's through these means of grace. Our worship, our prayer, our reflection on God's word, that's where God meets us. To give us fire. To give us an experience of his love and grace and presence. One last thing for you to think about. I'm just going to mention it quickly here. Isn't it interesting that Paul's most urgent prayer, for which he hits his knees, is not for you to love God. Not for us to love God. His urgent prayer for us is that we would experience how much we are loved by God. Because when that catches fire in your heart, no one will have to tell you to love God. It will seep out of every pore of your being. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you that at the end of of talking about Paul's prayer that you have given to us under the inspiration of your spirit, that we would have a moment to come before you and to pray ourselves, to pray that you would indeed give us strength through your spirit in our inner being in order that we might grasp, in order that we might comprehend the love of Jesus that surpasses all knowledge. Father, I pray that you would help us in giving us that strength this very week to wrestle the truth of your love deep into our hearts. And Father, remind us not just while we are gathered together as your people today, but remind us throughout the week that we were made to praise you. Fill our lips with your praise, we pray. And give to us an experience of your love. Draw near to us by your spirit because of the work of Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.